Chapter Nine of A New England Girlhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ginger Cucolo. A New England Girlhood, outlined from memory by Lucy Larcom. Chapter Nine, Mountain Friends. The pleasure we found in making new acquaintances among our workmates arose partly from their having come from great distances, regions unknown to us, as the northern districts of Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont were in those days of stagecoach traveling, when railroads had as yet only connected the larger cities with one another. It seemed wonderful to me to be talking with anybody who had really seen mountains and lived among them. One of the younger girls, who worked beside me during my very first days in the mill, had come from far up near the sources of the Merrimack, and she told me a great deal about her home and about farm life among the hills. I listened almost with awe when she said that she lived in a valley where the sun set at four o'clock and where the great snowstorms drifted in so that sometimes they did not see a neighbor for weeks. To have mountain summits looking down upon one out of the clouds, summer and winter, by day and by night, seemed to me something both delightful and terrible. And yet there was this girl to whom it all appeared like the merest commonplace. What she felt about it was that it was awful cold sometimes, the days were so short, and it grew dark so early. Then she told me about the spinning, and the husking, and the sugar-making, while we sat in a corner together, waiting to replace the full spools by empty ones, the work usually given to the little girls. I had a great admiration for this girl, because she had come from those wilderness regions. The scent of pine woods and checkerberry leaves seemed to bang about her. I believe I liked her all the better, because she said down and how. It was part of the mountain flavor. I tried, on my part, to impress her with stories of the sea, but I did not succeed very well. Her principal comment was, They don't think much of sailors up our way and I received the impression from her and others, and from my own imagination, that rural life was far more delightful than the life of towns. But there is something in the place where we were born that holds us always by the heartstrings, a town that still has a great deal of the country in it, one that is rich in beautiful scenery and ancestral associations, is almost like a living being, with a body and a soul. We speak of such a town, if our birthplace, as of a mother, and think of ourselves as her sons and daughters. So we felt, my sisters and I, about our dear native town of Beverly. Its miles of sea border, almost every sunny cove and rocky headland, of which was a part of some near relative's homestead, were only half a day's journey distant, and the misty ocean spaces beyond still widened out on our imagination from the green inland landscape around us. But the hills sometimes shut us in, body and soul. To those who have been reared by the sea, a wide horizon is a necessity, both for the mind and for the eye. We had many opportunities of escape toward our native shores, for the larger part of our large family still remained there, and there was a constant coming and going among us. 
the stage driver looked upon us as his especial charge and we had a sense of personal property in the salem and lowell stagecoach which had once like a fairy godmother's coach rumbled down into our own little lane taken possession of us and carried us off to a new home my married sisters had families growing up about them and they liked to have us younger ones come and help take care of their babies one of them sent for me just when the close air and long day's work were beginning to tell upon my health, and it was decided that I had better go. The salt wind soon restored my strength, and those months of quiet family life were very good for me. Like most young girls, I had a motherly fondness for little children, and my two baby nephews were my pride and delight. The older one had a delicate constitution, and there was a thoughtful, questioning look in his eyes that seemed to gaze forward almost sadly and foresee that he should never attain to manhood. The younger, a plump, vigorous urchin, three or four months old, did, without doubt, fill his life in every limb. He was my special charge, for his brother's clinging weaknesses gave him, the firstborn, the place nearest his mother's heart. The baby bore the family name, mine and his mother's. Our little lark, we sometimes called him, for his wide awakeness and his marty-heartedness. Alas, neither of these beautiful boys grew up to be men. One page of my home memories is sadly written over with their elegy, the graves of a household. Father, mother, and four sons, an entire family, long since passed away from earthly sight. The tie between my lovely baby nephew and myself became very close. The first two years of a child's life are its most appealing years, and call out all the latent tenderness of the nature on which it leans for protection. I think I should have missed one of the best educating influences of my youth if I had not had the care of that baby for a year or more, just as I entered my teens. I was never so happy as when I held him in my arms, sleeping or waking, and he, happy anywhere, was always contented when he was with me. I was as fond as ever of reading, and somehow I managed to combine baby and book. Dickens, old curiosity shop, was just then coming out in a Philadelphia weekly paper, and I read it with a baby playing at my feet, or lying across my lap, in an unfinished room given up to sea chests and coffee bags and spicy foreign odors. My cherub's papa was a sea captain, usually away on his African voyages. Little Nell and her grandfather became as real to me as my darling charge, and if a tear from his nurse's eyes sometimes dropped upon his cheek as he slept, he was not saddened by it. When he awoke, he was irrepressible, clutching at my hair with his stout pink fist and driving all dream people effectually out of my head. Like old babies, he was something of a tyrant, but that brief, sweet despotism ends only too soon. I put him gratefully down, dimpled, chubby, and imperious, upon the list of my girlhood's teachers. My sister had no domestic help besides mine, so I learned a good deal about general housework. A girl's preparation for life was, in those days, considered quite imperfect, who had no practical knowledge of that kind. We were taught, indeed, how to do everything that a woman might be called upon to do under any circumstances, for herself or for the household she lived in. It was one of the advantages of the old, simple way of living, that the young daughters of the house were, as a matter of course, instructed in all these things. 
they acquired the habit of being ready for emergencies and the family that required no outside assistance was delightfully independent a young woman would have been considered a very inefficient being who could not make and mend and wash and iron her own clothing and get three regular meals and clear them away every day besides keeping the house tidy and doing any other needed neighborly service such as sitting all night by a sick bed to be a good watcher was considered one of the most important of womenly attainments people who lived side by side exchanged such services without waiting to be asked and they seemed to be happiest of whom such kindnesses were most expected every kind of work brings its own compensations and attractions i really began to like plain sewing i enjoyed sitting down for a whole afternoon of it fingers flying and thoughts flying faster still the motion of the hand seemed to set the mind astir such afternoons used to bring me throngs of poetic suggestions particularly if i sat by an open window and could hear the wind blowing and a bird or two singing nature is often very generous in opening her heart to those who must keep their hands employed perhaps it is because she is always quietly at work herself and so sympathizes with her busy human friends and possibly there is no needful occupation which is wholly unbeautiful the beauty of work depends upon the way we meet it whether we arm ourselves each morning to attack it as an enemy that must be vanquished before night comes or whether we open our eyes with the sunrise to welcome it as an approaching friend who will keep us delightful company all day and who will make us feel at evening that the day was well worth its fatigues i found my practical experience of housekeeping and baby tending very useful to me afterwards at the west in my sister emily's family she was disabled by illness i think indeed that every item of real knowledge i ever acquired has come into use somewhere or somehow in the course of the years but these were not the things i had most wished to do the whole world of thought lay unexplored before me, a world of which I had already caught large and tempting glimpses, and I did not like to feel the horizon shutting me in, even to so pleasant a corner as this. And the worst of it was that I was getting too easy and contented, too indifferent to the high realities which my work and my thoughtful companions had kept keenly clear before me. I felt myself slipping into an inward apathy from which it was hard to rouse myself, i could not let it go on so i must be where my life could expand it was hard to leave the dear little fellow i taught to walk and to talk but i knew he would not be inconsolable so i only said i must go and turned my back upon the sea and my face to the banks of the merrimack when i returned i found that i enjoyed even the familiar unremitting clatter of the mill because it indicated that it was going on i liked to feel the people around me even those whom i did not know as a wave may like to feel the surrounding waves urging it forward with or against its own will i felt that i belonged to the world that there was something for me to do in it though i had not yet found out what something to do it might be very little but still it would be my own work and then there was the better something which i had almost forgotten to be underneath my dull thoughts the old aspirations were smoldering the old ideals rose and beckoned to me through the rekindling light 
it was always aspiration rather than ambition by which i felt myself stirred i did not care to outstrip others and become what is called distinguished were that a possibility so much as i longed to answer the voice that invited ever receding up to invisible heights however unattainable they might seem i was conscious of a desire that others should feel something coming to them out of my life like the breath of flowers the whisper of the winds the warmth of sunshine and the depth of the sky that i felt did not require great gifts or a fine education we might all be that to each other and there was no opportunity for vanity or pride in receiving a beautiful influence and giving it out again I do not suppose that I definitely thought all this, though I find that the verses I wrote for our two mill magazines at about this time often expressed these and similar longings. They were vague, and they were too likely to dissipate themselves in mere dreams. But our aspirations came to us from a source far beyond ourselves. Happy are they who are not disobedient unto the heavenly vision." A girl of sixteen sees the world before her through rose-tinted mists, a blending of celestial colors and earthy exhalations, and she cannot separate their elements if she would. They all belong to the landscape of her youth. It is the mystery of the meeting horizons, the visible beauty seeking to lose and find itself in the invisible. In returning to my daily toil among workmates from the hill country, the scenery to which they belonged became also a part of my life. They brought the mountains with them, a new background and a new hope. We shared an uneven path in homely occupations, but above us hung glorious summits never wholly out of sight. Every blossom and every dewdrop at our feet was touched with some tint of that far-off splendor, and every pebble by the wayside was a messenger from the peak that our feet would stand upon by and by. The true climber knows the delight of trusting his path, of following it without seeing a step before him, or a glimpse of blue sky above him, sometimes only knowing that it is the right path because it is the only one, and because it leads upward. This our daily duty was to us. Though we did not always know it, the faithful plotter was sure to win the heights. Unconsciously, we learned the lesson that only by humble doing can any of us win the lofty possibilities of being. For indeed, what we all want to find is not so much our place as our path. The path leads to the place, and the place, when we have found it, is only a clearing by the roadside, an opening into another path and no comrades are so dear as those who have broken with us a pioneer road which it will be safe and good for others to follow, which will furnish a plain clue for all bewildered travelers hereafter. There is no more exhilarating human experience than this, and perhaps it is the highest angelic one. It may be that some such mutual work is to link us forever with one another in the infinite life. The girls who toiled together at Lowell were clearing away a few weeds from the overgrown track of independent labor for other women. They practically said, by numbering themselves among factory girls, that in our country no real odium could be attached to any honest toil that any self-respecting woman might undertake. I regarded as one of the privileges of my youth that I was permitted to grow up among those active, interesting girls whose lives were not mere echoes of other lives, but had principle and purpose distinctly their own. 
their vigor of character was a natural development the new hampshire girls who came to lowell were descendants of the sturdy backwoodsmen who settled that state scarcely a hundred years before their grandmothers had suffered the hardships of frontier life had known the horrors of savage warfare when the beautiful valleys of the connecticut and the merrimack were threaded with indian trails from canada to the white settlements those young women did justice to their inheritance they were earnest and capable ready to undertake anything that was worth doing my dreamy indolent nature was shamed into activity among them they gave me a larger firmer ideal of womanhood Often during the many summers and autumns that of late years I have spent among the New Hampshire hills, sometimes far up the mountainside, where I could listen to the first song of the little brooks setting out on their journey to join the very river that flowed at my feet when I was a working girl on its banks, the Merrimack. I have felt as if I could also hear the early music of my workmates' lives, those who were born among these glorious summits. Pure, strong, crystalline natures carrying down with them the light of blue skies and the freshness of free winds to their place of toil broadening and strengthening as they went on who can tell how they have refreshed the world how beautifully they have blended their being with the great ocean of results a brook's life is like that of a maiden the rivers receive their strength from the rock-borne hills from the unfailing purity of the mountain streams a girl's place in the world is a very strong one it is a pity that she does not always see it so it is strongest through her natural impulse to steady herself by leaning upon the eternal life the only reality and her weaknesses come also from her inclination to lean against something upon an unworthy support rather than none at all she often lets her life get broken into fragments among the flimsy trellises of fashion and conventionality when it might be a perfect thing in the upright beauty of its own consecrated freedom yet girlhood seldom appreciates itself we often hear a girl wishing that she were a boy that seems so strange god made no mistake in her creation he sent her into the world full of power and will to be a helper and only he knows how much his world needs help she is here to make this great house of humanity a habitable and a beautiful place without and within a true home for every one of his children it matters not if she is poor if she has to toil for her daily bread or even if she is surrounded by coarseness and uncongeniality nothing can deprive her of her natural instinct to help of her birthright as a helper these very hindrances may with faith and patience develop in her a nobler womanhood no let girls be as thankful that they are girls as that they are human beings for they also according to his own loving plan for them were created in the image of god their real power the divine dowry of womanhood is that of receiving and giving inspiration in this a girl often surpasses her brother and it is for her to hold firmly and faithfully to her holiest instincts so that when he lets his standard droop she may through her spiritual strength be a standard bearer for him courage and self-reliance are now held to be virtues as womanly as they are manly for the world has grown wise enough to see that nothing except a life can really help another life it is strange that it should ever have held any other theory about women 
that was a true use of the word help that grew up so naturally in the rendering and receiving of womanly service in the old-fashioned new england household a girl came into a family as one of the home group to share its burdens to feel that they were her own the woman who employed her if her nature was at all generous could not feel that money alone was an equivalent for her heart's service she added it to her friendship her gratitude and esteem the domestic problem can never be rightly settled until the old idea of mutual help is in some way restored this is a question for girls of the present generation to consider and she who can bring about a practical solution of it will win the world's gratitude we used sometimes to see it claimed in public prints that it would be better for all of us mill girls to be working in families at domestic service than to be where we were perhaps the difficulties of modern housekeepers did begin with the opening of the lowell factories country girls were naturally independent and the feeling that at this new work the few hours they had of everyday leisure were entirely their own was a satisfaction to them they preferred it to going out as hired help it was like a young man's pleasure in entering upon business for himself girls had never tried that experiment before and they liked it it brought out in them a dormant strength of character which the world did not previously see but now fully acknowledges of course they had a right to continue at that freer kind of work as long as they chose although their doing so increased the perplexities of the housekeeping problem for themselves even since many of them were to become and did become american house mistresses it would be a step toward the settlement of this vexed and vexing question if girls would decline to classify each other by their occupations which among us are usually only temporary and are continually shifting from one pair of hands to another changes of fortune come so abruptly that the millionaire's daughter of to-day may be glad to earn her living by sewing or sweeping to-morrow it is the first duty of every woman to recognize the mutual bond of universal womanhood let her ask herself whether she would like to hear herself or little sister spoken of as a shop girl or a factory girl or a servant girl if necessity had compelled her for a time to be employed in either of the ways indicated if she would shrink from it a little then she is a little inhuman when she puts her unknown human sisters who are so occupied into a class by themselves feeling herself to be somewhat their superior she is really the superior person who has accepted her work and is doing it faithfully whatever it is this designating others by their casual employments prevents one from making real distinctions from knowing persons as persons a false standard is set up in the minds of those who classify and of those who are classified perhaps it is chiefly the fault of ladies themselves that the word lady has nearly lost its original meaning a noble one indicating sympathy and service bread-giver to those who are in need the idea that it means something external in dress or circumstances has been too generally adopted by rich and poor and this coupled with the sweeping notion that in our country one person is just as good as another has led to ridiculous results like that of a saleswoman calling themselves sales ladies i have even heard a chambermaid at a hotel introduce herself to guests as the chamber lady i do not believe that any lowell mill girl was ever absurd enough to be wished to be known as a factory lady 
although most of them knew that factory girl did not represent a high type of womanhood in the old world but they themselves belonged to the new world not to the old and they were making their own traditions to hand down to their republican descendants one of which was and is that honest work has no need to assert itself or to humble itself in a nation like ours but simply to take its place as one of the foundation stones of the republic the young women who worked at lowell had the advantage of living in a community where character alone commanded respect they never at their work or away from it heard themselves contemptuously spoken of on account of their occupation except by the ignorant or weak-minded whose comments they were of course too sensible to heed we may as well acknowledge that one of the unworthy tendencies of womankind is towards petty estimates of other women this classifying habit illustrates the fact if we must classify our sisters let us broaden ourselves by making large classifications we might all place ourselves in one of two ranks the women who do something and the women who do nothing the first being of course the only creditable place to occupy and if we would escape from our pettinesses as we all may and should the way to do it is to find the key to other lives and live in their largeness by sharing their outlook upon life even poor people's windows will give us a new horizon and people's windows will give us a new horizon and often a far broader one than our own end of chapter nine recording by ginger cuckolo washington d c